Welcome to Energy Radio Rewind. My name is Mark Charbonneau, the content specialist at CEM Engineering, and I have taken over this podcast for a very special episode. In this podcast, we go back in time to revisit some of our earlier episodes to highlight some of our fantastic guests and their adventures in the energy industry. As part of CEM's 30 by 30 initiative, which was started by Engineers Canada, aimed at raising the percentage of women in engineering by 30% by 2030, we decided to pull some of our favorite clips from podcasts of four incredibly talented women and put them together in our very first episode of Energy Radio Rewind. Our first segment was taken from Energy Radio episode 26, Shut It Down, Decommissioning Pickering Nuclear Generating Station, featuring Carla Carmichael, the VP of Nuclear Decommissioning Strategy at Ontario Power Generation. This is Energy Radio Rewind. Here we go. I am actually uh, an accountant by profession, which uh, people have told me I am the most atypical accountant they have ever met. Uh, so I, I mean, the, the secret truth is that I actually wanted to be an engineer. So I love talking to engineers, but I. I uh, kind of couldn't manage to do all that uh, physics and chemistry that was required, but being analytical, I sort of fell into uh, accounting and business, and so that's how I started my journey. Um, I guess the one thing about me is that um, I like to do a lot of different things and like to take a lot of different challenges and seek out sort of opportunities that don't uh, sort of bore me. So my whole career has been about, um, yeah, starting as an accountant, but um, quickly uh, changing roles, taking on opportunities to do things that I never thought I'd be given the opportunity to do. So I started uh, as an accountant at a large global high-tech company. Um, some of you may remember it. It was called Nokia. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so I worked, as a, worked my way up as an accountant there to head of finance and then quickly kind of got bored of that and asked to become uh, take on marketing and communications to learn that skill set. Um, and that sort of evolved into why I, I basically ended up uh, working in the energy sector because at that time uh, the phone called the iPhone came out yes. and uh, late 2007, eight, and um, I saw the writing on the wall and started thinking about other opportunities and Ontario Power Generation came knocking and they were looking for somebody who had some finance capability, but that could also do some marketing and public relations around nuclear um, and um, and that that area. And so I was very lucky to get into that company at that time and take on new roles, learning about nuclear. I basically worked in the operations side, operational reporting, benchmarking, looking at ways we can improve performance. So I had to learn a lot about nuclear energy at that time. Didn't know anything actually, and so I was starting from scratch cool. um, and then sort of evolved to you know lead finance for all the nuclear stations and a large nuclear projects so I think it was about a three billion dollar operating budget and maybe a billion and a half capital expenditure at the time um, I was lucky to be involved sort of in the business case for Darlington nuclear refurbishment and that's okay. how I ended up then moving there 
Mm. asking to kind of move into the project world, which I thought was exciting. Um, and it was very exciting. Three years of uh, a lot of excitement being there. Um, and uh, I led the commercial management group there and project assurance. And then they needed sort of somebody with some project experience, financial acumen, some stakeholdering uh, abilities to move into decommissioning. And this is why I ended up in decommissioning. It, it's a very large, our, our next largest project for OPG, uh, decommissioning the Pickering Nuclear Station. And, um, and it involves a lot of uh, project work, a lot of uh, financial acumen, and a lot of stakeholdering. So that's how I ended up here. And it's a fabulous portfolio. And I'm excited to uh, have started uh, that job probably um, late 2018. Well, before we get into the decommissioning piece, maybe, you know, for those who are listening, you can, you know, break down maybe from a high level, our, our fleet of, of nuclear assets. I think we have two you know, high level, are they similar technologies, different technologies? Maybe give us a, a crash course in OP. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, I can give you the general outline. Uh, so OPG actually owns three nuclear stations. Uh, we um, own the Pickering Nuclear Station, the Darlington Nuclear Station, and the Bruce Power Nuclear Station. Uh, we do not operate the Bruce Power uh, Nuclear Station. We lease that uh, to Bruce Power, and they operate it. Um, it is a part of uh, OPG's fleet of assets. Okay. And, be and because of that, it, it um, is included in my decommissioning portfolio. So Bruce Power is one of the plants we will ultimately uh, decommission because we have the obligation to do so. Hmm. Um, all uh, three stations um, are can-do nuclear reactors, um, which are pressurized heavy water reactors, so PHWRs, and they use heavy water as both the coolant and moderator. And the other sort of unique, well, different feature than, say, the American technology is that we use natural uranium as fuel. Hmm. Um, and these uh, these PWRs, um, the coolants used to boil ordinary water in separate loops. Um, but um, another sort of difference or advantage, I guess, to can do is that uh, we can do online fueling, so we don't have to stop the reactors to fuel them. And um, and we also use the non-enriched uranium, which is a lot less costly than enriched uranium, and um, and also. Um, we have different, uh, I guess, backup safety features. So sort of they call them redundant safety features in the industry. So that's sort of uh, the sort of difference of technology. Um, Pickering was brought, Pickering was our first, uh, brought, which was brought online uh, around, the first uh, uh, Pickering A was brought online 1971. Mm. And then the B, what they call the B side was about 1980s, 1981. Um, and then our Darlington facility um, has more recent design and came online 1990. Um, and um, some of the differences, be, there, there are a lot like technical differences because you have your, uh, your evolving technology, can-do technology. Um, but one of the big differences between Darlington and Pickering and why there's a lot of uh, reasons why 
we decided to refurbish Darlington and not Pickering is because Darlington units actually generate twice the, the amount of energy as Pickering's. Hmm. So Pickering was first evolution. Darlington came, uh, Bruce Power came. These units are a lot bigger. So it makes more sense from an economic perspective to make those kinds of refurbishment investments in Pickering or in Darlington and, and Bruce Power. Um, so that's one of the main differences uh, between the, um, between the sort of unit capacity features there. Let's talk about, um, you know, decommissioning and, and, and that's, that's really your, you've been kind of picked as, as, you know, <laughs> go, go figure it out. Um, but, <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> so from your, from your view of that world, um, I mean, what is it, you know, from a high level, what does it involve? You know, I, I think it's probably one of those things that, um, you know, if you're looking at other parts of the power gen sphere who are looking at mm-hmm. nuclear, there's, you know, that, that probably comes to the forefront as, oh, what are we going to do mm-hmm. when we cut these things down? Like, so there's this whole mm-hmm. uh, stigma or, or at a minimum question mark. So maybe, maybe cut through some of that in terms of what mm-hmm. it is and mm-hmm. what the high level. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I think it's exciting. <laughs> I never would have thought when I started off as an accountant, I don't know how many years ago, I won't tell you, but that I would ever be leading nuclear decommissioning for a large utility like Ontario Power Generation, never in a million years, but here I am today. Uh, Yeah, and um, what is it and what are we going to do? That is... um, that's a good good question, and I have been asked to figure it out. Of course, we have always had preliminary plans, um, and there is a, a work. There's been an ongoing work program for nuclear uh, plants, um, and and part of the regulatory environment, you are required to um, have a fund set aside, have um, these decommissioning plans put in place, um, so that that um, liability isn't just left for years to come for future generations to deal with. So obviously, you know, this has been um, in the in the program for many many years since the inception of these plants. Um, but what I could say of what I've learned, because um, I'm pretty new to this world. Um, but uh, just like any nuclear project, uh, the decommissioning of a nuclear plant is going to be very complex mm. um, and costly. <laughs> so both those things, uh, you know, are, are obvious. Um, but because Pickering is um, shutting down the next five years or so, um, we are already having to do some pretty um detailed planning of the first phase at least of decommissioning um so decommissioning is sort of broken into several phases in our world and um um and so um you basically start with safe stating then you sort of survey for a period of time and then you dismantle and and then site remediate so those are kind of generally the steps but like you know any complicated highly technical project R&D is key. So, you know, you got to start working on that now. We've been working on that for years. Engineering will be key. Um, and uh, project planning, project management, all of those elements are um, are fundamental. Um, in addition to, we need to understand what are the prerequisite projects um, and supply chain um, 
resources and assets that are going to be needed. So we need to identify those now and we need to kind of come up with plans to, to kind of address that if there are gaps. So it is um, it like, like any large nuclear project, it's complex requiring a lot of elements. Um, and, um, and um, so, so it, it is very broadly speaking, you're also talking about uh, financial, uh, um, financial resources, um, you know, you have a liability already on the books, you're already set aside money, so you're managing within all of that. You've got a lot of stakeholders who have a lot of, um, um, I'd say, um, opinions of how it should be done, what it should be done. You have a regulator who also oversees this. Um, and so, so it's a very complex sort of program in itself. Up next is a segment taken from Energy Radio episode 39, I Spy Energy, featuring Emily Beck of I Spy Energy. Emily talks about her journey from inventor to running her own web series and her work in the clean energy industry. This is Energy Radio Rewind. Here we go. Talk to us about how did you get into to our space and you know what's your background, what brought you to today? Uh, you're certainly very active in the space, but maybe kind of give us your uh, story that led you to today and then we'll, we'll jump in from there. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, let's see. So I, I'll start out by saying that I have an English degree. Perfect. So it's, and maybe it's even like, uh, uh, maybe like worse, quote, worse than that. It's an English literature degree. So, so, um, so I actually never thought for a second that I would be, you know, ultimately be in the energy industry. And I, I completely 100% got into the energy industry totally by accident. Um, and I can share more about uh, more about that. Um, uh, but yeah, I've, I've had a, a really uh, diverse uh, career. Um, I mean, I, I started out my career right after college, uh, starting a publishing company for for uh, guidebooks for students that were living abroad in Spain. You know, I'd had a terrible study abroad and 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 thought I would, yeah, we'll just start a company and. To, to create a, a better guidebook for you know to help students have a better time, um, uh, and uh, you know from from there I, I kind of progressed into having uh, multiple different jobs that again have nothing to do with energy. Um, started a couple of different companies creating uh, uh, other kinds of of uh, products and services, and then um, and then one day my buddy Chaz calls and says hey. Um, you know, I work for this this pump company in a one-car garage in Venice Beach, California, on the boardwalk. Uh, do you want to come work for us? Oh, and by the way, it's, it's commission only, uh, no healthcare, nothing. And I said, yeah, yeah, sure, that sounds awesome. <laughs> so, so I went to work for this company, uh, literally, that was in a garage uh, on the Venice uh, boardwalk, and I became their, you know, quote national or you know I, their east coast uh sales director selling this pump uh, all up and down the east coast and um uh, but 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 the pump was energy efficient and i it turned out that i really enjoyed working for a, or, or i guess working with a product that was energy efficient and actually did something better for the environment and that's when i was like oh 
yeah, I think I'm actually in the energy industry now. And, uh, and so it just kind of progressed from there. Um, and and I, I liked it enough so that I'm, you know, I'm still in the energy industry, uh, just in a, a different role, you know, several years later. Wow. So is that is that the by accident story of, of the garage in Venice Beach? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had I had started a couple of different companies and I'd had a I'd had a um, uh, gosh, I'd, I'd had uh, an unfortunate needing to close my my the second business that I started. And so um, I was I was kind of in survival mode after I had to shut that company down uh, once the, re the big recession hit. And so uh, when in survival mode, I went to work for one of uh, uh, the, the United States' um, least favorite internet and TV providers. <laughs> and, uh, and man, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't stand that job. Don't, okay. don't tell them I said that. <laughs> um, but so when my, my buddy Chaz called and was like, hey, here's a, here's a new thing for you to do, I, that's, that's when I uh, just was doing anything to get out of uh, that, that company. So yeah, and so... Just by luck or by chance, yeah, I, I, I got into the energy industry. So it's it's clear to me you have a an entrepreneurial spirit to you, I think. Is that is that a fair description? Yeah, yep, I sure do. And um I think I've had that for quite some time. It, it began as a as a kid, you know, selling or I guess making pot holders uh, and selling those to the neighbors and then I'd I'd make little animal figurines out of swamp reeds and stuff like that and sell those to the neighbors. Um, and then, and then I think from from that drive as a kid to create something, it grew into this um, this this drive or this focus on how to improve things. Um, so, so many of the products that I've created, uh, I don't know, in the past, I don't know, 15 or so years, um, has really come out of a, a a desire to make something better. Mm. Um, so, so fortunately or unfortunately, that's how I kind of. Um, assess everything that I look at on a daily basis. I'll be looking at a billboard or the cereal box or, you know, my most recent experience with, you know, customer service with, with Yo Play, right? I, I think how could, how could these things be better? How could that font be better? How could this photo be better? Right. Um, and so, um, and so it's this constant analysis that's going on in my head that, that leads to, uh, I don't know, the, the creation of, of these new products. It was kind of difficult selling this pump to the marketplace, right? There had not been a, an innovation in, in a pump system or, 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 I guess, a commercial hot water recirculation system uh, for, I don't know, like 30 years. And so here I was as a woman, right, speaking to these, um, you know, jaded male uh, engineers that you know didn't believe that this pump could do anything better than than what they already th that they already had right so um, so that was a constant challenge but but um, uh, but one that that I became <laughs> really familiar with uh, working in the energy industry right there are more women now certainly and a lot of women in sustainability and renewables but but there weren't a lot of women really in energy efficiency, and certainly there weren't a lot of women, you know, going around in in rat-infested uh, boiler rooms in New York City and Massachusetts, um, trying to explain to these engineers uh, how this pump works. Um, but uh, it, it did work pretty well, um, uh, and uh, yeah. It, wow. I think I think you can teach yourself anything, really. You know, if you 
if you stick with something and you believe in something, then you have the drive to, to go figure it out. And out of curiosity, what was the, the improvement uh, to the pump? Like what was so novel about it? Yeah, so instead of most uh, older uh, commercial uh, buildings will have a constant hot water recirculation cycle so that uh, so that when anyone in that building, you know, turns on the hot water, it, it'll be immediately ready, kind of like a hotel, right? You go into a hotel and there's no waiting for that hot water. It's, you know, bam, right, right there, ready, ready for you to get in the shower. Right. Right. But, um, uh, so, but that's possible because hot water is, is recirculating constantly. So what that means is the, the boiler is constantly heating up the water. Right, to make it available at any time. And so, so the improvement was that this hot water uh, had a mechanism that enabled uh, 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 you to call up the hot water when you needed it, but it, but it didn't have to be circulating 24-7 to, to get you the hot water quickly. I'm having a blast working in the renewable energy space. Uh, so, so our company is a, a, a global uh, energy consultancy, and uh, we work primarily with uh, Fortune 500 manufacturers, um, also industrials, uh, to help uh, them develop their renewable energy targets, um, uh, carbon neutrality targets, and then we uh, help them to explore the global renewable energy market and, and figure out which renewable energy mechanisms and strategies work, uh, you know, work the best to help them meet those targets. Okay, so so you're primarily you are providing you know services, consulting services to to folks who are are using using mm -hmm. energy, like are consuming lots of kilowatt hours or GJs of gas. Like you're providing consulting services to those who are consuming, <laughs> right? Yeah, so so we're advising these companies that that are 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 seeking to develop renewable energy goals or or uh, carbon carbon related goals, um, and then helping them to to procure renewables in service of those goals. If a, a company is setting a, a carbon neutrality goal, which means that they're aiming to have all scopes, scope one, scope two, and scope three, to become carbon neutral by a certain date, um, uh, then the, you know that goal is, is pretty much coming out of the the corporate you know headquarter uh, level. So we'll work with the with the um, uh, you know sustainability team, um, operations team um, uh, to 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 develop the strategy for them. So really, it's like a, a global holistic approach instead of a, a site level approach. Okay. And I, I want to talk in a minute about kind of you know what happens after the goal gets set in terms of you know implementation. But before that, like what what is in your experience what's driving <laughs> What's the impetus behind somebody to reach out to you? You know, at some point, you're, somebody's picking up the phone and saying, you know, Emily, I, I need, I need you to come in and help our team establish some targets and goals and navigate what it means to incorporate renewable energy or something into our world. But what's your sense of what's happening before that phone call? Um, the, what, what pressures? What what driving forces are at play? Yeah. So. It's it's um, it's getting super exciting to work in this space because companies are no longer procuring renewables just because it looks good, mm. right? The whole greenwashing thing, you know, like while it still exists, 
that's certainly not why companies are doing it today. Um, and I, I guess there are three primary uh, reasons um, uh, why companies are, are making these goals today. Um, uh, number one, I would say, is customer pressure, mm. right? So, so, so why is an automotive supplier coming out with a super aggressive carbon neutrality goal by 2030? Take Daimler, for example. They have a, a carbon neutral goal by 2030. And that's not that far away to be carbon neutral across their entire manufacturing wow. uh, plants, right? Um, and so, uh, uh, but, but they're, they're progressive. They're setting this goal. Uh, but but what, what that means for their suppliers, and we work with a lot of these automotive suppliers who are trying to, uh, to uh, create products that will fit into Daimler's 2030 carbon neutrality strategy. So, um, so it, let's say a seatbelt manufacturer sells to Daimler, but Daimler's saying, oh, no, no, now, now we're carbon neutral, so you have to make those seatbelts carbon neutral as well, right? So, so this is a, a, a pressure that we're hearing from a lot of uh, the automotive suppliers, but a lot of manufacturers that are supplying um, these, these, uh, these, these, these bigger OEMs, for example. In our third segment, you will hear from Shauna Pahal. She joined us in Energy Radio episode 46, Damn Power. Shauna is the Senior Managing Director at Manitoba Hydro, and she talks about the role of hydropower in renewables, the impact of hydropower on the environment and the indigenous communities that live in the vicinity of these projects, as well as some of the challenges facing women in this sector. This is Energy Radio Rewind. Here we go. Well, thanks very much, and thanks for inviting me, uh, Matt and Lisa. Um, yeah, so I've had an opportunity, I can't believe, but it's uh, 37 years this year that I've been in the industry. Uh, right out of university, I started as a chemist at Manitoba Hydro, and um, I just had the opportunity to try different things because it's a large company and uh, had opportunities to pursue education while I was still working at Manitoba Hydro. And so I moved into all different areas, into safety and occupational health, and then into quality control, and then into improvement initiatives, and an executive assistant, and um, then I looked after strategic planning and business planning for a number of years, and then I looked after the um, pre-construction phase of our large dams, mm -hmm. uh, so worked on the Kiask Wisquatam projects for about 12 years, um, mm -hmm. and during that time, though, concurrently, I had the opportunity to do some international assignments with our international arm, Manitoba Hydro International, and um, got to work overseas. And then I got the bug to do international consulting and work with utilities around the world. So I've, you know, I had the opportunity. I think I've worked with about 40 different utilities around the world now, and I've worked in about 20 different countries. And, uh, yeah, and I, I just have a passion for that now, um, the overseas work and uh, working, um, working with uh, countries that, that are just in the process of uh, developing their, uh, you know, their energy infrastructure. So that's my story. And I'm now at, um, I was, my last job was the vice president of finance and strategy at Manitoba Hydro. And now I'm back at Manitoba Hydro International full time as a senior managing director and, uh, and loving it. Wow. Very cool. Thank wow. you. 
Well, let's let's maybe start kind of at the Manitoba Hydro level, and then we'll kind of narrow in. Talk to us a bit about. I think it's in some ways there's a lot of unique and exciting things about Manitoba Hydro. Talk to us about um, the utility and the business, and what you're in, and how you guys operate, and then we'll talk about uh, uh, your your area of the company. Well, for sure. So Manitoba Hydro has been around for like a hundred plus years in some form or another in the province, right? Um, so we have some pretty old generating stations in the province. Um, and Manitoba Hydro is like 97% hydro. So we're blessed with a province that has an elevation that water runs from one end to the other with a nice uh, decline. And so we get to um, build hydro generating stations um, that can generate a lot of renewable hydropower energy. And so uh, we're 90, yeah, 97% hydro. And that's sort of been our, our thing for forever. We have a little bit of wind and a little bit of solar. Um, but because we live in what they call the hydropower province, um, we don't have a ton of other renewables in our mix. It's primarily hydropower. And that's been the... Um, the story of Manitoba Hydro and and um, under our new leadership um, we're taking a look at some more strategic planning and um, looking at strategies going forward for the next 20 years in the energy landscape and how it's changing and how we will need to pivot and how we will fit in there um, being a primarily hydro utility and how that works in the whole mix so um, we also have a significant um, we merged with the gas company in Manitoba a number of years ago so we have a large gas uh, component to our energy company. And um, so what's interesting there that people, I think, don't realize is that um, we have more energy from our gas uh, side of our business to, for heating um, than our electrical. And so um, one of the challenges in our industry and in our province will be to try and slowly move from gas to more renewables like hydropower and other renewables um, but that's a heavy lift given the amount of gas we use to heat our homes. So yeah. that's sort of the state we're in right now. And Manitoba Hydro is uh, vertically integrated, which is not too common these days anymore. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, that's a hilarious comment, Matt, because, you know, because I've worked all over the world. One of the things I spent in the 90s was I was working um, in India quite a bit in all the different states in India and working on projects for the World Bank um, or USAID or various uh, development organizations that were funding projects. And the projects were to unbundle uh, the utilities, so to take them from being vertically integrated to unbundled, right? And then there were mm. some discussions of selling certain pieces off or, you know, all the various discussions that take place when you unbundle. And what's fascinating is then about four or five years ago, I got asked to come back to put them back together. <laughs> and I said to my wife, that is a sign that I should retire because I, they hired me to take them apart. Now they want to hire me to come and put them back together. Clearly, I've been working too long. <laughs> so it's, it's quite interesting in, in terms of the global sort of picture of that, the vertically integration you know, with which getting all the synergies and then people looking at it as a business model, unbundling it and then now putting it back together. And I think it depends where your where your perspective is on um, the whole industry. Right. In terms of is energy a uh, human right? And do you mm. um, do you or, or do you try and optimize it and maximize it to make the most money or do you 
create the synergies and dependability and reliability because it's a human right and everyone gets electricity. So I think it's a, it's probably four or five podcasts worth of debate about um, vertically integrating versus not vertically integrating and unbundling and what the impacts and puts and takes are of that. So mm. I'm sure lots of our, our, our listeners, Sean, I don't necessarily know how a hydroelectric facility works. Can you kind of dive into that a little bit for us? Well, yeah, there's, um, it's primarily taking uh, mechanical or kinetic, mechanical energy, water energy, um, and running it through a turbine and uh, turning it into electrical energy. So you try and create a, usually you build a dam. Um, there's other configurations that you can use, but generally you build a dam and then the water on one side is higher than the water on the other side. The water falls through a, what they call a pen stock or a, yeah, a long tube into the bottom of the dam, pushes a turbine that spins it around. Those of you who can't see me, I'm using my finger to go around and around. So it spins the turbine <laughs> around and there's a shaft on the top of the turbine that spins and that turns the, uh, uh, creates energy inside the generator, which then gets moved on to transmission lines in different configurations and then eventually into your home. So um, there's other configurations. You don't necessarily have to uh, pool water and build reservoirs, which is one of the issues with the environmental uh, issues that come along with hydropower. So, you know, there's one of the river plants or pumped hydro storage or, you know, other different kinds of configurations. But primarily the classic one is the hydro dam where you're damming water up and storing it till you need it and then the different elevations between the head and the tail race can create the energy to to convert to electricity and and why in your opinion i mean we're hearing a lot about renewable natural gas we're hearing a lot about hydrogen and solar and wind and energy storage we're not necessarily hearing a lot about you know hydroelectric power is there a reason for that in your mind yeah, it's not sexy at all, right? It's like the least sexy <laughs> of all energy, pro, uh, any, anything you talk about. It's been around for 100 years plus, right? The technology has hardly changed. Like literally when I meet with some of the big, the big uh, um, manufacturers of large equipment for hydro dams, I literally want to poke pins in my eyes because it's so boring because it's just like, it's the same thing over and over and over. Like, there's only so many ways you can build generators and exciters and like, there's just so there's only, you know, it's just not sexy. And, um, and so there's, you know, there's been some modifications and changes, but it's been around for a hundred years. Uh, it's been the same thing, take water energy, turn it into electrical energy. Um, you know, there's, there's not that much that's that interesting about it. And um, it's just like the, the good old grandpa who's always been there sitting in the corner. And, um, yeah, it doesn't get talked about very much. And how does it compare, Shauna, from a pricing perspective, pricing point? You know, you've got 97% hydroelectric you mentioned earlier. You have sun. You you have solar, sorry. You have uh, wind. Obviously, you need to have the water or, you know, the ability to make hydroelectric power. But, you know, how does it compare against some of the other technologies from a pricing perspective? Well, you know, it's it's really hard to compare it because you try to use a levelized cost of energy to compare different technologies, right? But it's really right. an art. It's not really a science. And, you know, it's there's so many variables and caveats, like depending on 
um, what time of day you're talking about, um, the cost of solar might be totally different at a particular time of day. Because mostly, um, if you look at, like in Manitoba, for sake of argument, you look at our energy pattern, um, where our peaks are during the day. Um, well, we don't really peak that much in the middle of the day. You know, we peak in the morning mm. and we peak in the evening and in the day it's sort of flat. Well, when's the sun shining? Well, when it's flat. So um, then it's not worth as much, right? But on the shoulder parts where you're peaking, then it's worth more. So it depends what kind type of day, what day it is and, um, you know, what what other things are doing in the in the um in the system at that particular time, what that energy is worth. Um, but, you know, all things said and done, it's um, uh, solar and wind and hydro are pretty comparable in price, uh, depending on the situation. But, you know, if you look at various um, resources like Canada Energy Sites or the International Energy Association, like they'll, you know, it's usually lo like more large hydro is within the bandwidth of solar and um, and wind right now. And of course, yeah, of course, the um, the price, you know, we're always everyone talks about when we figure figure out this battery storage issue for the renewables, we're going to have that'll be a step change. Right. And um, but right now, that's not the case. So the prices are quite um but it's really hard to compare. People always ask that and try to compare. And it's really, there's so many what ifs, but. Mm. Well, and you're comparing different asset lives too, right? Like you, you talked about a hundred years, you, you, you know, your asset life for a hydroelectric facility is much, much longer than, than wind or solar, right? Well, exactly. Yeah. That. yeah. It, it's yeah. All, you're comparing apples and oranges. At least you're in the fruit category, but it's really, really hard, right? <laughs> In our final segment, we revisit a more recent podcast, Energy Radio Episode 57, From Hospitality to Construction, featuring Melissa Strange, who due to COVID chose to pivot her career from the hospitality industry to the construction industry. Melissa is now a general contractor's assistant with Valley Contracting and Renovations. In this episode, Melissa offers up advice to women on how to prepare for a change of career and talks about some of the resources she used to ease this transition. This is Energy Radio Rewind. Here we go. Because this is such a shift, right? You're going from hospitality to construction. Like, what did your parents think? Like, you know, did you did you hit any of those typical uh, gender biases that somebody might be saying, well, really, you want to go into that? Like, you know, like, did, did you get any of that? Or, or can you talk to us a little bit about that piece? Sure. Um... I guess in terms of um, working with my hands in, in the past, I have, as a child, always enjoyed arts and crafts. More recent years, I've enjoyed cake decorating, more so the decorating side than the baking. <laughs> <laughs> um, my, I help my dad around the house do a lot of different projects. Um, and... He, he's a very handy person, always has been growing up. Um, I didn't spend as much time alongside him as I should have. Could could know a lot more now if I had. But um, anyway, so I, I did always have that exposure. And um, I, I do enjoy keeping active as well. Um, uh, you know, taking care of your, yourself, working out. 
as opposed to just being stationary all the time. So those are a couple of um, traits about about me. Um, my parents were really supportive of the idea. Um, I guess my mom initially thought that I should, because I loved it so much, um, look at trying to go back to my former industry because trades will always be there. There is, um, or going to be more so, an increased demand for them in future years. From what I understand, more people are retiring than are actually entering the workforce. Mm. And my thought was more, uh, you know, if I get in now, by the time we hit that point uh, in society, I will be skilled, not starting out. And um, so I just felt that, you know, this may be a really great opportunity and also I feel things happen for a reason for me anyway, or maybe I just always try to see the silver lining. Um, so I, you know, I felt rather than pull a UE and go back to what I was doing, I think onward and upward we go. So um, my dad, obviously so excited to talk tools with me all the time and share tools and buy me new tools. <laughs> <laughs> and the support uh, for women, like I, I'm, I have left a highly female-dominated industry, the event uh, world, and yes, moved over to a more male-dominated industry. Um, I personally haven't, have not experienced, uh, at least at this point, gender bias. There's a lot. I, I've received a lot of support um, from males and females, uh, including my employer. Um, I guess people are often surprised if I talk about it um mainly I think due to my size and my gender <laughs> but um I'm a, a little more petite for um such a uh physically demanding job but um and especially now trying to get more diversity in general in in trades and construction um you know be it women and, and other visible minorities there there's a lot of a lot of support and I would say more support than than bias um at, at least from what from what I've experienced so far that's great now are you are you working right now for like a construction or firm or company or are you like are you an intern like what's what's your job status right now Melissa so I yes I do currently work for a general contractor Okay. Um, I guess initially my thought was we finishing my pre-apprenticeship program in carpentry and find someone to take me on and do my carpentry apprenticeship. Um, my employer respects the fact that I'm interested in, uh, doing a carpentry apprenticeship, but he was actually really keen to teach me more than just carpentry if I was interested. So um, I've been working with him just over three months now and I've had my hands in so many different things. It's been an amazing experience. Um, you know, we've got the opportunity, we've done some drywall, uh, worked with concrete, done some masonry, um, put in a floor, uh, certainly some carp carpentry st still, um, framing. One of the jobs right now I'm working on is installing hardy board on the exterior of a house. So it's a cement fiber board. Um, 
quite dusty when you cut it and awkward flimsy boards, but it looks really great, the end result. Um, so I've just been enjoying the variety and learning lots um, as we go. Um, did a, got the opportunity to put a roof on an addition a few weeks ago. So um, I wouldn't say that I, I'm not going to pursue my apprenticeship. It's, I've just kind of put it to the side for now. Also, I may find that carpentry isn't what I want to do. Perhaps there's a different um, uh, achievement, if you will, that I want to pursue mm. at, rather than than my carpentry apprenticeship. So, and and what do you think is required to get more women involved in male-dominated sectors? Like like you you know you made the shift to construction. Is it is it education? Is it you know? trying to kind of knock down the fact that there aren't as many gender biases as people think there are. Like, what do you think we need to do to get more women involved, I guess, in, in these male-dominated sectors, whether it's construction or energy? Yeah, I definitely think education. I've, I've seen um, just being more involved in this industry now, um, some programs or organizations that run programs for uh, girls in schools, just uh, the opportunity to sort of showcase um, some of these options for them, have them, you know, be able to try some things. So maybe it's um, bring in some tools to the gymnasium and get them to to build something small and try things out. Or maybe it's a field trip and taking them to um, a site somewhere or, or Habitat for Humanity project or something mm -hmm. like that. Uh, you know, and again, having them um, just in an environment of girls, they may feel more comfortable and less judged um, being away from their, uh, their male classmates. Um, but I definitely think um, education for sure. I actually had joined a couple of women a construction or like professional organizations once I had um, made the plunge and, and started going to carpentry school, one of which is a Canadian Association of Women in Construction or C-A-W-I-C. Um, Did I get that right? Or C-A-I-W-C. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, just um, I had a lot of success in my former career with networking, um, I guess both personally and professionally. Initially, I did it more because I was in the sales role trying to find business opportunities. But as I got involved in the industry and went to events regularly and saw the same people and you get to know them, then things stem from that. Um, you know, later on, it was uh, a job change and who your contacts are that can help support you in that regard. Um, for me now, there may be um, renovation <laughs> jobs. People see what I'm doing now and, and may look to me for some assistance in that regard. So having a strong professional network is, is really important. And so for me, joining some of these organizations and getting to meet some women in this industry and learn about them and maybe learn um, about some of their struggles, advice, things that they are able to offer me is really helpful. Um, and, 
just making contacts. You never know when you might need um, whatever service for, for a job that you're doing. Um, so that I think is really important. And these organizations also run some educational endeavors themselves, which may be of interest to help further your your growth um, in, a, in an industry as well. So I would say um, professional, so well, taking the ini initiative yourself and in joining professional organizations or for those professional organizations or companies to reach out and, and run programs in, in schools, I think would be very helpful or, or even local communities perhaps as well. Well, that concludes our first episode of Energy Radio Rewind. To hear these episodes in their entirety, go to cemng.ca forward slash podcast, or you can find them anywhere podcasts can be heard. Please subscribe and share with your family and friends. We would greatly appreciate it. On behalf of Matt Lensink and Lisa Katz, we want to thank you for listening. And until next time, power your purpose. <laughs>